Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Well, it is great to be back on a Saturday night here on News Talk 830 and great to have my friend Professor David Schultz back on with me and also back in the country. I've been giving uh, our listeners a little tease saying you were out there in Eastern Europe on behalf of the U.S. State Department as you do often uh, lecturing and talking to various groups and the State Department ran out of money. You had to come home. That's exactly correct. So let me tell you where I was supposed to be. Yes. The original plan was Slovenia, um, then over to Zagre- um, to Croatia, and then to Belarus. And several months ago, um, the money that was available, this is for the State Department. The State Department was going to cover this to lecture at some universities and to talk at especially in, when he got to Belarusia, to talk to some community groups. I've been there before and done the same thing. Um, the money to go to, to um, Slovenia had been allocated several months before, so there was no problem with that. Um, but um, we, 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 we were planning, planning to do the, um, um, the other two countries, and literally up until the day I was supposed to go, we, you know, we kept thinking, well, at some point, the, the continuing resolution um, will, be, will be agreed to and the government will, will stay open and won't shut, or, or in case it'll reopen, won't be, um, and I'll be able to go overseas to these other countries. Well, on the day before I was leaving the United States, uh, the, the U.S. Embassy in Minsk said, we don't have the money and we're not going to be able to be open. And so we have to cancel this at the very last minute. Wow. Um, but, but, but I'm amazed that you even got off the ground. Why? Well, the first part of it. Well, I am too. Again, the reason why that worked is that, that we secured the money for that about, boy, I want to say four or five months ago. The money had already been transferred um, to to the university where I was going to be. Uh, and and so, the, so that was free and clear. And the U.S. Embassy didn't have to do anything when I was actually in, in Slovenia. Actually, to tell you, I really, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to say it's a funny story or perverse story, um, is that when I was in Slovenia, we went down to Ljubljana, which is the capital, and um, we want, I wanted to go down and actually talk to the embassy officials like I gen- generally do when I do these different tours. And they contacted me, and they said, we're not allowed to be open or do any program um, at all um, while the government shutdown was going on. So I couldn't even go down to the embassy and um, talk to embassy staff as a result of it. Wow, okay. But it it sounds as if the embassy itself, like, didn't know they were going to not be open. That's exactly... Until, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I get at one level, you know, this is you talking to people, but what does that say? Well... I mean, that's... Troubling. It is troubling because when our, you know, think about it, our embassies are not open in the United States and our embassy staff um, didn't know until the very last minute if they were going to be open or if they were going to be closed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a funding problem. It's a communications problem. It is, in terms of services, it's a problem because 
I know a lot of people may be thinking, well, the embassies um, are there only for the purposes of maybe doing diplomatic work, but they're also there working with American citizens abroad. So that, for example, let us say I'm in Slovenia or, um, you know, that I've been to like Russia and I've been, sure. to, um, I've been to Lithuania many times. If I, as an American citizen, have a problem, um, I get to call the embassy and say, can you help me with such and such a problem like that? So it's not even, it's not open to provide services even to Americans um, when we're overseas. Wow. Okay. So, so if you have a problem there, but, and were you able to kind of quickly get on? So which, which city did you end up leaving from? Cause you didn't well, get it to Minsk. Okay. So That's- I, so my, so what I did from my, my, um, my trip was I flew into Graz, Austria, um, and Graz, Austria is the closest airport to um, 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 Maribor, um, Slovenia, and I spent most of my time in Maribor lecturing there. Um, the university there received funding from the U.S. State Department for me to give a series of six lectures on on American constitutional law and to try to explain um, in a real nutshell how our constitutional and political system works. Um, So I was there, and then I was down in Ljubljana um, a couple of different days, and that was it at the end. um, Because of the funding issues, we couldn't do anything in Croatia, and we couldn't do anything in um, in Belarus. Um, And so that's why the trip got cut short by quite a few days. And and was it, were you able to, you know, easily book a flight out and well, did this, that work pretty well? Well, that that was, but this was a complex thing because when I when I um, arranged for the flight, my flights, I was going to fly from um, Graz to Minsk, Minsk, you know, then back home to the United States, um, and because of literally at the last minute cancellation, um, I had to cancel my flight to Graz to Minsk, and then um, Minsk back to the United States, um, and of course, as all of us you know, who have dealt with airlines sometimes, it is not always easy to cancel. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to get my money back. And, and the State Department doesn't know if it can ever actually reimburse me in terms of this also. So I'm out a few hundred dollars on terms of that. Because what was going to happen is that I bought... I'm surprised the- it's not more. Yeah, or actually it's a lot more, we'll say. Yeah. Um, but what happened is that because the money wasn't coming, money wasn't coming, I said, all right, I'll just buy the tickets um, and then... When the money's, you know, when I get my reimbursement or when I get my um, my grant, I'll be fine. Well, that, that's probably never going to happen. Right. Uh, let me ask you, what was the reaction? I mean, what were, were the, what was the reaction in these countries? You know, to people you talked to about the shutdown. I mean, were they is it, were they puzzled, surprised? Puzzled, yeah, because I mean, the, the first question that I always get is, how could a country shut down? You know, how could a government shut down? Because we're the only government in the world um, um, that has government shutdowns or partial shutdowns like this, where we just, you know, we have to, we have to, you know, well, we have to either lay off or furlough people, and, and so it's this incredible uh, amount of perplexity in terms of how does the United States? They would say to me, you know, the, the most powerful, largest, richest country in the world. How do you? actually shut down your government, or how can it shut down? And so this becomes a a complex discussion in terms of it. I can give them the simple answer. The simple answer is that the government can only spend money if it has legal authorization to do so. That's the simple answer. But the the complex political answer about polarization, about, um, about, um, you know, breakdown of political compromise, um, all becomes far more... Um, difficult to explain. 
Right. Well, and, and I'm sure, and, and, and trying to explain, I know that you, you told me, like, trying to explain the Electoral College and yeah. uh, some of these overseas trips, it, it, it's probably baffling. And it sounds like the sense of, of puzzlement has even grown under President Trump's administration. It has. It has. And some of the other peculiarities that about our political system in terms of debates that we have, they also don't understand. You're right. Thankfully, this time, I didn't have to discuss the Electoral College, which is confusing enough to explain to Americans, let alone explaining to people who don't live in the United States. You know, but as part of my discussion of, of what I was um, doing in terms of constitutional law, we were also talking about issues such as presidential power, you know, questions that you know, we ranged in terms of this, this explaining what is an executive order, for example, or you know, the, probably the biggest debate that we have, I think, potentially politically and legally in the United States, um, is all around right now um, Donald Trump and you know, could could a sitting president be indicted um, or is impeachment the only option? And again, all these are are tough questions. Good questions <laughs> in the United States, and they're tough questions overseas. Although, on one level, you know, when I said to them, "We're debating the question of whether a sitting president can be indicted," they look at me and say, "Well, in our country, and almost every other country that I've been in, um, that yes, it's, there's not even a debate um, that their presidents or prime ministers can be indicted if they violate the law." So, so they look at they look at some of our debates with some perplexity in terms of, well, why would you think it would be different for for your president compared to our president? All right. Uh, listen, we are chatting with uh, Professor David Schultz uh, about his recent trip to Eastern Europe that was cut short because of the government shutdown. We do have to take a break, but want to talk about uh, this latest proposal from the president. He says this is a compromise, very lukewarm, te- lukewarm tepid reception from Democrats. I uh, want to get uh, Professor Schultz's take on whether he thinks this will do it. Uh, and also, let's go to some of those questions later on this hour with Professor Schultz, who obviously is a constitutional law professor. What is going to happen? Michael Cohen set to testify before Congress. A bombshell report was uh, apparently not true that came out that suggested uh, the president could have broken the law. Not true. The special prosecutor or, uh, says – so a lot to talk about with Professor David Schultz. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to News Talk 830. It's 821 in the Twin Cities, down to three degrees, chatting with Professor David Schultz. Uh, let's talk about the president making an announcement from the White House saying he has this compromise proposal, which essentially says, Democrats, give me the money for the wall and I, I will allow a temporary reprieve for the dreamers to stay. Uh, of course, the Dreamers under President Obama had a permanent deal that was pulled away from them uh, under President Trump. Your thoughts about this proposal, and do you think this will do it? No, this won't do it um, at all. I mean, there may be the basis between him making this offer and Democrats saying they're willing to spend even a little bit more on, on border security that may be nudging us closer to something, but this isn't going to do it at all. Um, in fact, the offer that he made today is similar to, but but I would say even less than an offer that he made to the Democrats several weeks ago, um, and the Democrats had rejected it then. 
and there's several problems with this besides the fact that Democrats have already rejected it. I think among the concerns that Democrats have is that this is only a temporary reprieve um, being done by what's called an executive order, which means he could then... And by the way, these exec, this, is, this executive order in terms of the reprieve is exactly what Donald Trump criticized Barack Obama about doing several years ago when he was president. And so I don't think the Democrats necessarily trust um, the president of the United States on this. Plus, again, it's only temporary anyhow, and it's not a permanent fix. So there's really not very much to this um, offer that he's, he's given. What he's really saying is, give me everything that I want, um, and I'll give you um, a temporary um, reprieve for up to three years, an order of which I can really um, overturn at any time. And let me ask you, I mean, there's, and obviously this, this is really becoming a crisis situation, especially for those people who are working for the federal government and, and not getting paid. Um, my husband told me a story that, that he's had a customer come into his furniture store and say that, that people were actually giving gift cards to TSA workers at the airport, uh, in, in sympathy and to try and help them. And I know that at least one restaurant in town, the Bachelor Farmer, uh, the owner, Eric Dayton, announced that, that they were going to be providing free lunch items to anybody with a federal ID. Um, it's extraordinary to think that these people are going without pay. There is a lawsuit that has been filed arguing that, the, that they shouldn't be able to be compelled mm-hmm. to work without pay. Um, what about that? Because there's, there's some logic to that for well, me. Well, there is. I mean, I mean, I mean first off, I was – I was kidding with somebody and saying that requiring somebody to work without pay, you know, um, kind of sounds like we've had passed a constitutional amendment barring that called, you know, the abolishment of slavery and servitude. You know, and, and I don't know, I mean, if the argument's going to be made on that grounds or under fair labor standards, but the idea of saying that we're going to force people to work without being paid um, strikes everybody, I think should strike everybody as something fundamentally unfair about that. Now, think about also some of the people who are being asked to work um, without pay. I don't know if you've caught this story at this point, but our Coast Guard um, um, is not being paid. Right. And they're they're still required to protect the American borders, and as well as the Secret Service, which is providing protection for the president and other people. So there is um, a significant... Um, oddity in the fact that we're asking lots of people to work, do important government service, but we're not paying them. But also, if a judge doesn't eventually rule that this is illegal, what it really sets up is a precedent now for the future of saying, well, how long could the federal government compel people to work without pay without violating the law? This is what I think um, a decision against the workers would eventually push people into. Right. And and obviously, and, and I was reading a story today about a small town in Alaska where one-third of the population uh, is actually employed by the Coast Guard. Yes. And, and, and so the ripple effect uh, of stores and, and – because people don't have any money. Yeah. Uh, well, well, in Minnesota um, – um, I may do a plug for something here. I don't normally do, but first off, we know about seven, between six and seven thousand federal workers in the Twin Cities um, are affected by this right now, which means they're not being paid. So that's pretty dramatic on their part. And I, and I don't normally do this, but I will. Is that there is a group, um, a, a food shelf in in um, Golden Valley called Prism um, that has started to see an uptick now 
in federal employees coming in and um, using their food shelf services, and we're seeing this nationwide also in terms of it. And I just mention it because um, I gave a pretty good donation to PRISM um, yesterday and hope other people, you know, don't forget the fact that people are always hungry, but right. there are federal workers right now who, who have missed a paycheck and they've got lots of bills. Right, and I know PRISM, Second Harvest Heartland, I mean, I think that's, if you're looking for a way to help, I think that's, that, that, that's, that's an absolutely great idea because these people, um, as I said, are, are doing important jobs, even dangerous jobs. They are doing very dangerous. dangerous jobs and not getting paid. And then, you know, Tina Smith also has a bill for these can- – there's 8 million federal contractors who in past shutdowns haven't gotten any back pay. Right. And, you know, we, you know it's, it's just some irony here. We live in a state that understands government shutdowns, you know. Yes, we do. <laughs> we've, we've had three of them in the last 20 years. And that last one that we had, which was a really long one, um, it cost the state millions of dollars and contractors, I think there may be still some lawsuits still being resolved at this point because contractors lost tens of millions of dollars when that shutdown occurred. Well, listen, we're chatting. Take a break here pretty soon here for some weather. But first, I do want to ask you, um, in terms of some of these issues of constitutional issues, uh, what is your thought about whether a sitting president can be indicted? Right now, there's, there's no evidence to suggest that they've got enough to indict the president. It looked like there might be earlier this week right? Um, w- with that BuzzFeed report, which was completely discredited, that BuzzFeed report, uh, which sent shockwaves through the government uh, or through really the, the, the nation, said right. that um, the president had ordered Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. And you had the extraordinary situation where Robert Mueller actually came out with a statement saying that report wasn't true. I mean, how unusual is that? That's incredibly unusual for prosecutors at any level to come out and make comments like this. And Mueller, who has been about as tight-lipped as possibly you can be, um, for him to come out and didn't completely repudiate the piece, um, but significantly questioned um, most of the BuzzFeed um, approach, you know, and and how they described it there. Um, Now, exactly what Mueller was saying was wrong. Uh, it's not completely clear, but this is pretty unusual. Now, in terms of if we have, I don't know if we have time before the break or afterwards, the argument, I did a piece in the Hill a few weeks ago and said that, um, that the process of impeachment doesn't preclude indictment and that, yes, a sitting president could be indicted. Wow. Okay. Listen, let's continue that conversation. And obviously we've got the testimony this week of Michael Cohen before the House... Uh, Judiciary Committee, and I think that's going to be fascinating to see too. But let's take a quick break. We do have to give you some weather. It's obviously very cold out there, and then we'll have more with Professor David Schultz after this. It's 8.34 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, Let me ask you about the testimony later this week by Michael Cohen before Congress. How big a deal is this? Certainly not as big as it would have been had the BuzzFeed story been accurate, but still, nonetheless, it's going to be pretty significant because, since we know Cohen is already cooperating with, you know, with the um, the prosecution, we're presuming um, at this point that he's going to be candid with Congress, and he's going to know an incredible amount 
about a variety of different things, including what um, about Trump's you know dealings with with the Russian government over because he because he's basically said that Trump was and him and Trump were negotiating on a tower very very late you know into the campaign season. Um, the story came out this week that Cohen was involved in manipulating um, early polling data um, to make Trump look better, and who knows what else he's going to testify about. So so I think this is going to be a pretty significant testimony in terms of what's going to happen. And I'm assuming now um, that it's going to get covered live by several of the major um, um, news media out there. Well, I, yeah, and I would think so. certainly the cable channels will, will all have it live. Um, and obviously the, the BuzzFeed report, uh, that was the one where, where people were just, I think, jaws were on the floor. That turned out to be completely not true. The president sort of using that as vindication here. But it does seem as if the temperature on this is still supercharged. Oh, it still is supercharged. And again, for points that I made before the break, even though Mueller criticized the BuzzFeed piece, it didn't unequivocally come out um, and say that everything that the BuzzFeed piece said was wrong. So we don't know at this point, um, for example, we don't know completely you know, what relationship the president had with Cohen regarding um, any kind of orders that he directed to, directed to Cohen um, on, a, on, a, on a variety of different things. And so this is going to start to come out. And I think the other thing that we need to come back to also, which I think didn't receive quite as much attention this week as it should have, although it did initially, and then it got drowned out by Cohen, was Giuliani's... I was going to ask you about... Yeah, yeah, Giuliani's very strange admission saying... what was? I have to get all the double negatives in there, where he said, I never said that there wasn't collusion with the Russians... Right. And, and, you know, with the campaign and after, I mean, how many times what the networks, and you're right, that this, that this story did get drowned out. It was big for about 30 seconds. Right. What was that all the network stories played the president saying, how many times has he said it? There was, was no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. And then this, this cryptic statement from Giuliani saying, well, we never said there wasn't collusion with the campaign. When, yes, that's exactly what they were saying. Exactly. And then he, I think he tried to refine it by saying something to the effect of, well, maybe there was collusion with lower-level staff or others, but the president wasn't involved in it. Um, it's, this is, it's a very strange um, thing that he did this week, unless he's preparing the, um, the public for a statement that eventually comes from Robert, Robert Mueller that says that there was collusion, and what he's doing at this point perhaps is trying to insulate the president of the United States, um, Donald Trump, you know, from the collusion. But nonetheless, put the two together: Giuliani's statement, Cohen's statement. Um, um, Cohen's going to have a lot to be discussing this week, and it's going to probably range anywhere from the business dealings to the polling asking him, you know, did the president order him to lie to Congress? And it's probably going to get into um, some other collusion issues. And then we also shouldn't forget about, you know, since the last time we've talked, in the last couple of weeks, you know, the increasing information that's coming out regarding Paul Manafort and what we know in terms of where he indicated that, um, that he had shared some information, you know, you know, with Russians. You know, that, that sounds pretty close to uh, cooperation or collusion. Right. Um, it, you know, and all of this is taking place sort of against the backdrop of the very beginnings of the 2020 presidential campaign. You've got 
a bunch of candidates, sort of big names who have jumped in. The latest one, Kirsten Gillibrand, a senator from New York, has been in Iowa for a number of days. Uh, one of the things I think is so interesting is that she continues to be asked questions about Senator Al Franken's resignation because she led the charge, uh, you know, in calling for his resignation. Uh, what are your thoughts about her and, and some of these other early candidates that, that are emerging? Well, start with her is that she's got two sets of problems. One of them is, is exactly over Al Franken is that even though when she came out, it was probably at the and came out and request for him to step down. Um, this came, I think, at the height of the Me Too movement. Yes. Came at the height of the Harvey Weinstein movement and so forth. And there are a lot of people in Minnesota and nationwide who think that Franken stepped down too soon. So, so one, I think she's going to be taking a lot of heat for that. And then two, um, she's sort of on an apology tour right now because when she first became senator, you know, she had a 100% rating from the NRA. She, you know, she represented a relatively conservative rural district in upstate New York, um, and moved to, um, to you know statewide center in a very liberal state. Um, I think she's going to have a very hard time with her campaign. Now, on the other hand, we have. Elizabeth Warren um, and Julian Castro, you know, who have formally, de- you know, well, he's formally declared Elizabeth Warren. It's the exploratory committee, but essentially means she's running for president. Uh, I mean, what we're going to see uh, with those two individuals, I'm hearing any day that we're going to see Senator Kamala, Kamala Harris declare. You know, we're seeing a Democratic Party that's pulled in lots of different directions in terms of uh, not having a united voice or a single. Um, sort of theme, and and this, assuming Donald Trump runs for re-election, is the best thing going for him, a Democratic Party that may be very, very um, disunited. Right, and and he, of course, has his base that is sticking with him. I do want to ask your your view, because I haven't asked you about this, uh, on Elizabeth Warren. I don't think we've ever talked about this. I I guess what I, I, I think this whole DNA test that she released, which showed that she was eight to ten generations removed, uh, that she had a Native American ancestor. To me, I, I am just stunned that she obviously thought this was going to make her look good. Yeah. And I don't think it does at all. And and I, I you know, there are a number of Native American groups, including some here, mm-hmm. who who say this is this is not right. You know, I mean, at all. Yeah, yeah. The best criticism I've heard, and I can't remember who it was locally, I heard say this. That said, that DNA doesn't resolve whether you are um, a Native American. Um, being Native American is something that the the tribal sovereignties right. um, get to decide in terms of what qualifies. And people people may not understand that 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 Indian tribes, Native American tribes, are sovereign nations within the United States. Much um, and they get to make decisions regarding who qualifies to be um, a Native American, who qualifies to be an Indian. And they were very, very upset, you know, with her saying, well, um, I've got this very, very small percentage of of DNA, um, therefore that makes me an Indian. And I think it's a problem for her. Um, I think it's a big problem. And and the fact that she put it down when she was working at Harvard Law School, that that was her ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. I think think she clearly has a a base, again, she has a base of support that likes her, um, and there's a a part of the liberal wing of the party that likes her, but this becomes one of those stories in one of those lines 
that I think doesn't help her completely within the Democratic Party, and were she to get to the um, the Democratic nomination, I think this becomes um, more of a problem Fuel. with swing voters. Right. I also think that, that she also put out a video that was just uh, a little cringeworthy, frankly, where, where she was um, talking to voters in her kitchen and uh, – she said, well, l- l- let me get a beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, time now for a beer. So she goes to get a beer. She tr- drinks the beer. And it, it, I almost was like, what, is she just trying to make an appeal to Midwesterners because we all drink beer? Or yeah. I, I mean, it just it – just, and, then, and, then, and then her husband, she's, she's her husband and says, thanks for stopping by. And they're in their own, ki- they're in their own kitchen. Yeah. Like, where's he supposed to be? I mean, it just, it just was a, a very <laughs> awkward video. And, and, and uh, many people I've talked to who've seen it just said, "That's an awkward video." Yeah, I was going. Awkward's one description. I was going to use contrived. You know, contri- it, it just looked very plastic and fake. And you're right. And for people who live in the Midwest, you know, the uh, it sort of played on um, East Coast stereotypes of what they think people in the Midwest um, are like. And again, I'm not sure how well that plays in terms of Iowa or Minnesota. Or right. anywhere else in the Midwest. All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a break here um, uh, in just a second, but I do want to um, ask you because I think that segues very, very nicely into a possible run by Senator Amy Klobuchar, who I think is going to have to make up her mind really pretty darn quick. So let's keep it here, folks. News Talk 830 WCCO. More with David Schultz after this. It's 849 in the Twin Cities, three degrees, back with Professor David Schultz. Uh, We're talking about the early stages of the 2020 presidential run. I know it sounds crazy to some people, but those Iowa caucuses, February 3rd, 2020, just about a year away. Hard to believe. All right, Amy Klobuchar, I I think this is very serious. Uh, She's obviously, and she said as much, that she's giving this very serious consideration because her family is on board. I think she's got to do it yesterday. I do, too. I think in some sense um, she has already lost significant ground. The fact that we have three people, um, and I'm going to also say two women already, who have declared, and and again, as I mentioned earlier, Kamala Harris, um, probably we're looking at, you know, any day now. Um, I think... This is going to get harder and harder for Amy Klobuchar. I think the first challenge she already she had several challenges to start with. One of them is still explaining her narrative. You know why she wants to be president of the United States. Two, we know from polling she's not exceedingly well known outside of Minnesota, even though she's had several national media appearances in presidential, let's say, preference polls right now, she comes down at, at the bottom at this point. So, so she faces incredible amount of challenges um, um, already, and the fact that she still hasn't declared and is still kind of, let's say, in, in the thinking stage, um, it's going to get harder and harder because these other candidates are going to be able to go out, what, talk to donors, um, talk to supporters and so forth, and recruit people. Um, she, I mean, I think you're right. I think she needed to, I think as soon as Elizabeth Warren declared, you know, on the last day of last year, um, that already made it harder for Amy Klobuchar to run. Right. Although I do think that we were just talking about sort of the problems with, with, with both Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand, who've been right. very awkward right. in, in some of their appearances, very awkward. I do think that, you know, Senator Klobuchar, if, if she 
declared this week. Right. <laughs> um, she is a senior member of the Agriculture Committee. She can go down to Iowa and actually talk that policy because she knows it. Uh, I, I do think that there is something um, – I, I think you know she's somebody who I think could do it. I actually do, uh, despite the fact that she's less well-known and the fact that she is from the Midwest and that her whole being is sort of the antithesis of what President Trump is, I think could make her a very viable candidate. You certainly have other people, though, like um, you know Joe Biden and uh, who are obviously going to jump in. But I think for Klobuchar, because of her la- the name recognition, I think it's got to be very soon. I too. And one of the other challenges she's going to face, I know she's banking on an Iowa strategy. And one of the complications next year of the Iowa strategy is that California has moved its primary, which is traditionally in June near the end, to where now its primary is going to be coming right around the beginning of March in with I think they're going to be like, so, like a big Super voting. Tuesday. Yeah, right. And with early voting, you're actually going to have early voting going on in the California presidential primary wow. when the Iowa caucuses are occurring. And I mention this because by moving California up, this changes the equation dramatically because, among other things, you're going to have to now run in California, which requires an incredible amount of fundraising, and assume that Senator Kamala Harris from California decides to run, she has a significant leg up um, in California compared to everybody else. And so this, so this is a complication I'm also going to throw in um, for Klobuchar, which is less about her as a candidate um, than it is a strategy that's banking on Iowa as the as the sort of the, the springboard in terms of being right. being successful as a candidate. Right. You know, I, I think, as I said, I think if she did get in immediately, I think, I think that there's a chance there. I mean, I remember when she was first running for the U.S. Senate and Patty Wetterling was, was also in that campaign. And I remember talking to uh, one of her aides in the county attorney's office because she was then the Hennepin County attorney. I said, well, you know, Patty Wetterling's so well known. She's been this child advocate. She's, you know, uh, really been this extraordinary figure for, for children and, and advocating for victims' rights. And this person who was in the, County Attorney's Office said to me, "Don't underestimate Amy Klobuchar," mm-hmm. <laughs> and which I think is I think is is true. But it'll be interesting to see if she does pull the plug. But I, I think you're absolutely right that that she will have to do it very very soon. Obviously, Joe Biden also biding his time, but he also has obviously the extraordinary name recognition. Is he too old? Well, this is. I, I did an exercise at the end of last semester when my students were asking me about Democratic candidates for president, and I wrote Biden. I threw, I threw Clinton's name in just for the heck of it, too. I threw Biden, Clinton, um, Warren, and um, who else did I have in here? Uh, oh, Sanders' names on the board, and I pointed out to them that the youngster of those four was Elizabeth Warren at 69. Um, and nothing against older people, you know, but I have to wonder to what extent those ca- those four candidates, um, I'm not going to say Clinton's running, she's not, but those four individuals um, can resonate with a, a younger um, and more liberal in a, in, a, um, in a different crop of people coming up who consider themselves to be Democrats. I don't know. Right, and, and, and that will be so interesting to see it all play out, and obviously against the backdrop of, of just the, this chaos in Washington with, with you know, uh, 
it it sounds like you and many other people believe that this is <laughs> this is this announcement by the president isn't going to end the shutdown yeah. and you have also the drama that's going to it's going to be extraordinary drama i think on thursday when michael cohen as we were talking about is scheduled to testify before congress i mean mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in this backdrop yes, there is and also we still have to see how the again robert Mueller's final report plays out i think we have over the next few months, um, an enormous number of things are going to play. And again, given the fact that the Democrats have to declare in the next, let's say, three to four months to be in a position for, for the you know, Iowa caucuses, the Iowa straw poll, and so forth, um, I think it's going to be an extraordinary, let's say, next three to four months in terms of laying the groundwork for the 2020 presidential election. All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, I'm glad you made it back to the U.S. I am too. <laughs> On your dime, I was wondering about that, but um, it's great to have you back and great to have you back on uh, News Talk A3L. Great. Okay, thanks so much. Take care. Bye. All right, the one and only David Schultz, and please check out his blog, Schultz's Take. It's always awesome and great to talk with him after uh, I was gone, he was gone, um, got bumped because of some Timberwolves games. It's great to be back on with him and certainly no shortage of things to talk about as we – Amp up for, uh, yes, the 2020 presidential run and certainly going to be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks with the shutdown as well as with uh, Michael Cohen testifying before Congress. Uh, that is scheduled for Thursday. Well, folks, uh, that about does it for me. I want to thank Susan Blanche, the producer of this show, also Jonathan Lowe and uh, our fabulous, fabulous Miss Shaletta Brundage for being our studio coordinators and producers as well. And I want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. I'll be there. And then also uh, a very special guest, two very special guests uh, coming on at uh, 10.30 a.m., uh, WCCO-TV Channel 4. I'm going to be joined by Representative Ilhan Omar, and obviously we're going to talk to her about the government shutdown and this compromise that the president says is a compromise, which others apparently disagree with, what he, what she thinks of that. And then also Patty Wetterling to talk about the remarkable Jamie Claus story and what parents and kids should know in order to keep your children safe. Nothing could be more important. All right, folks, you're listening to News Talk 830. With uh, Professor David Schultz, we do have... T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.